You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. All right, good morning again. Good morning, good morning. Some of you latecomers, um, I want to introduce myself again. My name is Drew Lindman. I am our uh, leader for our young adults ministry. It's very good um, to be here this morning and to be worshiping and celebrating Jesus because He is our life. He's the resurrection and the life, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning and coming up here pretty soon. We've got a holiday around the corner. So I was wondering if you could participate with me a little bit further right now. When I say, He is risen, you say, Let's try that again. He is risen. I don't believe you. He is risen. Amen. He is risen indeed. These are some great words to understand the resurrection. That once Jesus was dead, but now he is alive. He is risen. But did you know that there are even more great words for us to use to understand the resurrection? Indignant, astonished, silenced. Pulled from themes in Matthew 22, 23 through 34, where the Sadducees asked Jesus a question, indignant, astonished, and silence give us insight into how we are to think about the resurrection and how we are to come to know if the resurrection is even possible. Because you see, resurrection is a huge topic in all of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, we should be looking at this theme in order to build a strong foundation, lest we be like the Sadducees who ignored parts of Scripture. Therefore, this morning, let us prepare our hearts for resurrection now and in the future, April 17th, 2022, Resurrection Sunday, by looking at Matthew 22, 23 through 34. Please turn to the text now. Now, before I read the text, I want to give us a little bit of context of of where we're at, because we're 22 chapters into the book of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew was written by Matthew, an eyewitness to Jesus. He was a tax, tax collector, the lowest of low in society. But Jesus called him, and he was transformed to the point that he wrote about the glories and the wonders of Jesus in this book. And in Matthew 22, we are past the basic establishment of who Jesus is, because that's what Matthew is writing about. John the Baptist has clearly decreased, and Jesus' ministry is now all about, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is Jesus' ministry. If Jesus' life were like a marathon, in Matthew 22, do we have some runners in the room, 26.2 miles? If it was like a marathon, he would be at mile 18 or 19 at this point. You see, he's running really, really well. He just ran across the palm, ran across the palm branches with everyone in the stands shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Come on, Jesus! Keep running! Bring in the kingdom, save our souls, cross the finish line. Little do the crowds know, with all this cheering of Hosanna, he's about to cross the finish line, but it will cost their Savior his life. 
Also, in Matthew 22, we have some very important characters. The context is so important. These characters are the Sadducees. Who are they? Have you ever heard the song, I Just Want to Be a Sheep? Anyone heard that before? I just want to be a sheep, ba-ba-ba-ba, from my head down to my feet, ba-ba-ba-ba. I don't want to be a Sadducee, for they are sad, you see. Amen. They are indeed sad. The Sadducees were the party of the high priest, the aristocratic families and the merchants, the wealthy people in society. They were also religious leaders. Resources indicate that most of the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel during that time, were the Sadducees. And as leaders, they might sound like leaders in our government at times, they were more worried about accommodating to Rome than the common Jewish people. A lot of people hated them because of their corruption. Also, they were known for rejecting the oral law. So the law that was passed down over time with tradition, they rejected the oral law, but only held to the written law. That's one of the main differences between them and the Pharisees. The Pharisees accepted the oral law, and the Sadducees completely rejected it. And lastly, this is so important for this part in the text, the temple was central to their existence. You see, in the temple, they practiced the written law, all the laws that God had, had, had laid out for them. They practiced them daily. And you know we see them beyond Matthew 22. We don't see their name often, but, but we see them in other places like in Luke 19, 47. This is when Jesus is in the temple, the Sadducees' turf. Luke records this. And he was, in the temp- he was teaching daily in the temple. This is Jesus. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Jesus was on their turf. The Sadducees were running the temple. And you know what? In John 2, where Jesus talks about destroying the temple, and and we know he's talking about his body, not the physical temple, the Sadducees had to have been extra, extra furious because their life was all about the temple practices. And it's interesting because when the temple was actually destroyed in 70 A.D., The Sadducees basically died out. It's a warning for you and I. Groups die out when they're not following the truth, when they put their hope more in a physical physical, uh, foundation than the spiritual reality that Jesus Christ is king. And lastly, the biggest thing we'll see this morning is the Sadducees ignored the resurrection. Let's look at the first six verses of Matthew 22, starting in verse 23. The same day Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brothers. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his, bro- left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife shall she be? For they all had her. Indignant. The first six verses in this passage can be described by the word indignant. 
Now, what does indignant mean? We don't use that word very often. Maybe you, you do know some indignant people. Indignance is defined as a feeling or showing anger or annoyance at what is to be perceived as unfair treatment. The Sadducees were indignant as they asked this question. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, I don't see this word in this passage. And you don't see this word in this passage, but Matthew uses this word three other times within the book of Matthew. It's a Matthew describing word, if you will. After Jesus' teaching, or after one of Jesus' actions, or after someone worships, worships Jesus extravagantly, like Mary of Bethany who broke open, open the bottle, this word indignant is typically used. They were indignant because the woman poured the bottle on Jesus. Why this waste? Why is he doing these things? This is a Matthew describing word, and this describes the Sadducees right now. Matthew could have written, he did not, but he could have said something like, indignant, the Sadducees said, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife shall she be? A little bit more of an annoyance tone should be read when we look at this question. But how do we really know for certain that the Sadducees were indignant? Well, it is, it is incredibly important because the context ushers in even more. You see, it's kind of like a gathering storm, if you will, before we get to this question. Now, this isn't the gathering storm of the British joining the war after Nazi Germany attacks, attacked them in order to save Europe and the rest of civilization, but this is a gathering storm where the Son of Man will be eventually tried, beaten, and mercilessly crucified. The thunder cracking with each question that is being asked by Jesus that they are more and more indignant towards him. Let's observe this gathering storm for a moment. The first occurrence is in Matthew 2, 3 through 4. Remember King Herod? When Herod gets wind of the birth of Jesus, the scripture says, when Herod heard the king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem, all of the Sadducees with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod was indignant. Jerusalem was indignant. The Sadducees were indignant about the, the birth of this coming king. Next, we see that Herod becomes furious. And what does he do out of his fury? He kills all of the male children within Bethlehem. Thankfully, Jesus escapes and he's able to live another day. Now, to do a little bit more of a rapid fire to see the storm growing even, even closer, first we see that people begged Jesus to get away from him. They accused Jesus of blaspheming. They questioned Jesus about eating with dirty tax collectors and sinners. Why would you do such a thing? Jesus over and over again was, was, was told that he had a demon. He was called the prince of demons. Indignation was growing throughout the book of Matthew. And this isn't, this, isn't, this isn't the end here. What about those questions? Because there were more questions before the question that we're seeing this morning. To list a few said by many different people, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Said, toward Jesus, said towards Jesus. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? 
for they do not wash their hands when they eat. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? By what authority are you doing these things? And who gives you this authority? And lastly, a question not said to Jesus, but one that should stick in all of our minds, said by Judas, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? A gathering storm, a great story about our king being delivered, crucified, and one day rising again. Indignance, annoyance towards Jesus and all he stands for. This is the first part of Matthew 22 with the question and the Sadducees. And in the bigger picture, we have to ask ourselves this question. Is this our attitude before we approach the text? Are we indignant towards Jesus and all that he stands for? Now we know, according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, this is true of all people. All people are indignant to Jesus before they have him. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Dead men hate Jesus. They are indignant towards him because what does Jesus do? Jesus tells people what to do. The totally depraved mind can't stand instruction. Wait, I can't do this, but I feel this way. I am attracted to, to this thing or, or, or that thing. Oh, come on, Jesus. That's, you're, you're crushing out my fun. You're kind of killing my vibe. Don't we hear that all the time these days? Don't steal my vibe. You're killing my vibe. Positive vibes, man. I work in a, in a secular workplace at ADP, and there's a big sign on one of my coworkers' decks that says, Positive vibes only. Don't kill my vibe, because if it's crushed, all hope is lost. And, Jesus, and, and without Jesus, we are all indignant towards him. And if we are in Jesus, there's still an attitude of indignance that we can fight. So for the believers this morning, 1 John 1.8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This is the doctrine of being sanctified. We're going from glory to glory, being like Jesus, and we're fighting off sin. We're fighting off an attitude of indignance as Jesus is telling us what to do to become more like him. And it's glorious, but it is a fight. So this morning, we must wrestle with these voices. Whether we know Jesus or don't know Jesus, what are we going to do with his voice and how are we going to approach him? To the non-believer and to the believer, we must surrender all of our questions, all of our indignance, and humble ourselves before him. That's how we're to handle it before we look at the text. 1 Peter 5, 6 says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. This morning, church, he wants to engage us. Remember that glorious verse in Romans that says, he, he, he died for us while we were still sinners? He's engaging us this morning, even in our indignance, even when there's some blemishes there, he wants to engage you. And if you do not know him, you don't have to clean yourself up to come to him. He wants to engage your indignant heart. Therefore, 
when we are convicted and disciplined to grow in Jesus, when we are indignant towards him, we should respond by listening to his response to our indignant heart. Let me read that again. We should respond by listening to his response to our indignant hearts. There's a loud response this morning. Pay attention to it. All right, let's look at the question because it is a little bit complicated. We, we just read it. And, and, the, and the first topic that, that sticks out is this topic of love right marriage. What is love right marriage? We don't really see that today. And it's not common in our culture at all. So let's define what, what, what this is. This text has a lot of definitions, thinking about the Sadducees and then love right marriage. Love right marriage is defined in Deuteronomy 5. This is a law instituted by God, and it says this. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies, and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of her husband's brother to her. Simply put, according to Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and Deuteronomy specifically, if in a family the brother, the brother dies and his wife is left, the brother is to go and marry her in order for the institution of the family to continue. The family is a very, very important institution of government. It keeps us all together. If the family is healthy, then the government can be healthy. And God knew this. God wanted this institution to continue. So a, a broken family with the, the, the father passing away, the brother swoops in, marries the wife, and they continue. They have stability. They have an income. They have a role model. They have a father. God thought that this was important, and the Sadducees knew all about this because they knew about the written law, and they were asking Jesus about this in a very interesting question. Now, this question could be called a parable, if you will, because you see, the Sadducees heard a lot of Jesus' parables. And parables were stories that were filled with wisdom. However, the Sadducees' parable is not filled with heavenly wisdom like Jesus' Jesus's parables. Like a lot of commentators write, their parable is more of a riddle. It's a tricky riddle in order to try and trap Jesus. Let's break down some of their wisdom. The first part of the riddle. Moses said... If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow. First, the Sadducees are appealing to the written word, not oral tradition. Hey, Jesus, we're appealing to the written word. We know what, your books, what the book says. Tell us more about this. Stick, stick with us here. Their question, their riddle is framed in written truth. The next part. Now, there were seven brothers among us, so the story increases a little bit further. Jesus, there were seven brothers, there was a big family, 19 kids and counting, it was very, very big. Can you keep track of what's going on here? The Sadducees are testing Jesus' ability to keep track. The next part, the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Okay, Jesus. So, of course, we follow the tradition, and the brother married the wife of, of, of the deceased, and it continued on. But then he died. Uh-oh. 
Here's a little bit of a twist. The riddle, the riddle is increasing. Is this it? No. It continues. So, to the second and third, down to the seventh. Oh, it's incredibly complicated. Kind of sounds like when a child asks, asks a question about a topic and they add all these little details in there to try and understand it. This isn't a child. These are indignant men asking these questions. The grand twist to the riddle. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. What shall we do, Jesus, in the resurrection that we deny? But if it did exist, marriage must be in there. What shall we do? The grand twist. They thought they could trick Jesus. But does Jesus fall for it? No, Jesus does not fall for it. He breaks the question apart verse by piece by piece, verse by verse. And they were astonished. And this morning, we will be astonished by his response. Let's continue in the text. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what is said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, when the Sadducees heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Astonished is another Matthew word. It occurs four times in his book, and it's usually used every time Jesus answers something or is teaching on something. Let's break apart this response a little bit further. The first two things that Jesus accuses them of is this. They do not know the scriptures and the power of God. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Know the scriptures? What do you mean? These are the people of the written law, right? They should know the scriptures better than every, anyone. They follow the first five books of the Bible. But what were they ignoring? You would think with Jewish blood and with, with, with the writings being kept intact that they would know the wisdom literature, that they would know what the prophets, prophets said to their people. They're ignoring the scriptures. Hosea 6.2, talking about the resurrection, says this, After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise up, that we may live before him denying their resurrection, ignoring the scriptures. They are seemingly caring about the written law, but limiting God, dwelling in indignance and disbelief. They were, if you will, creating their own truth. Does this kind of sound familiar? Flip on any television show, talk show, tune into the ladies at The View talking about your truth, my truth, everybody's got a truth. What truth do we have around? They were creating their own truth because they did not know the scriptures or they did not want to submit to them. So they had to add something else in order to understand it. Isn't this what we all do? Oh, wow. 
Jesus, this is a challenge, but truly you're not calling me to not have sex outside of marriage. Truly you're not saying that these relationships should be this way or that way. We need to add this little thing in there in order for this to come. So, Jesus, we don't understand the resurrection, but we do need to add, if there was the resurrection, we do need to add marriage in there, filling in an earthly reality. Theologian William Barclay writes this concerning the Sadducee's question. The question is irrelevant, for heaven is not going to be simply a continuation or extension of this world. There will be there will be new and greater relationships which will far transcend the physical relationships of time. Scripture and the power of God are calling to something greater. When it says what it says, it means what it says. Our relationships will go beyond marriage. Why add an earthly reality to the Word of God? Therefore, We must trust what the scripture says about the resurrection or any topic without adding to them. The scriptures say this in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to your God. Scripture has the power to do all of this, and we must know it so well and simply submit to it, not add to it. And when this is done, I see this daily as I'm I'm at church, through the staff, through us, the congregation, encouraging one another in the truth. When it's done rightly, it is powerful. Therefore, our minds must grow in spiritual wisdom through the plain reading of the scriptures. And we must accept, therefore, looking at the power of God part, a spiritual reality. The fact that the dead are raised. Remember Nicodemus? He did not understand heavenly wisdom. He did not understand about being born again. He's like, wait a minute, minute, Jesus. I got to go back into my mother's room? That does not make any sense. What does Jesus say to him? Jesus answered him, Are you truly a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe in heavenly things? Not believing the scriptures, not believing the very word of God, the power of God, believing in heavenly things is a reality. If you are in Jesus Christ this morning, you believe in heavenly wisdom, and you should not be ashamed of it. It's beyond what the world can ever think or imagine. With the power of God, the dead are raised, the sick are healed, the lame walk, mourning turns into joy, and sin is paid for. This is a heavenly reality. If we stay on earth, ignore the scriptures and the heavenly reality, the power of God, we can land in error. For example, look to the Mormon church, one of the most pervasive cults of all time. It's founded on the premise that every other church is corrupt and that Jesus is calling for us to join another church. The one true church spoken through angels and gold tablets. 
Joseph Smith, who we see on the screen here, its founder, became so uncomfortable with the fact that God works through plain scripture and his broken bride where division does happen and sin does bear its head and God does will suffering that he applied not only earthly wisdom but demonic wisdom. Joseph Smith was known for practicing magic and sorcery to leave what he could not understand in the word and what's around him. Does that sound familiar? Leaving what we can't understand to find something else? Micah Wilder, a former Mormon missionary, testifies to coming to the word of God simply and the power of God. He was transformed. In his book, Passport to Heaven, which I would encourage you to read, it's his testimony about coming to Christ. And there's this one instance where a, a, a pastor challenged him to read the word of God, to see the power of God. And Michael was ready to fight. He literally talks about it like going, in, going into battle to take this evangelical pastor down. And this is what the pastor says in response to his, his battle. Elder Wilder, I challenge you to study the word of God. Read it. Feast upon it. And prove that what I have told you is wrong. I promise that if you read the New Testament as a child with an open heart, seeking for truth, God will open your eyes to his boundless love, and you will see for the very first time the beauty and simplicity of the good news of Jesus Christ. Wilder, who was an ambitious, ambitious missionary who the Spirit was chasing down, accepted the challenge, and he began to read the Bible as a child. And as he read it, he became convinced of the Word of God and the power of God. He writes, What I had found in Christ was infinitely greater than anything in the world or my religion could ever offer me. Jesus was enough. Jesus, the word regarding the resurrection and his power, is enough for you and me. To every disenfranchised community out there that feels unknown, from the LGBTQ community to the transgender community to the addicted family to the broken family, Jesus knows you and is searching, searching you and he wants you to submit to his word because he is good and he has paid for your sins. We have a heavenly reality in Jesus Christ. Let us simply believe it. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in life only, we are, we are all people most to be pitied. Let's not be pitied people. Let's believe the truth about what God's word says about the resurrection. But what about marriage and the resurrection? This is the bigger, big part of the, of the whole story. Jesus says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. We will be like angels. This is kind of mystical. Again, we must submit to the word of God because this is a heavenly reality. John MacArthur, the great preacher, has a great analysis on this. He says this, the angels were all created at one time. They don't procreate and they don't die. Their number is fixed. There is no need for marriage because there is no need for propagation. There is no need for replacement. There is no need for continuity in race. 
There is no need for the kind of union because of having a relationship with God and Christ as our true bridegroom and having a perfect relationship with everybody else in the glory of heaven precludes the necessity of having any other lesser relationships. A heaven reality, something so much greater than marriage. We will be like the angels in Isaiah 6 saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with your glory. Something so much better. It's astonishing for us and it was astonishing for the Sadducees. The Sadducees, again, did not, did not accept the resurrection and they also did not accept an afterlife or hev- a heavenly reality with angels. Acts 23.8 says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. They did not like Jesus' response. It, again, is astonishing, and we need to submit to heavenly wisdom. Angels exist, and we will be like them if we are in Christ, praising God for all eternity. The last part of Jesus' response. I am the God of the dead. I, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Earlier, we observed a passage in Hosea outside of Torah that proves the resurrection. But Jesus concludes with a passage inside of Torah, a passage that the Sadducees should have known. Exodus 3 6 where the Lord is speaking to Moses through the burning bush. He says again, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is the God of the living. What are the implications of the statement towards the Sadducees and towards us? Simply, if you reject the God of the living, the God of the resurrection, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are eternally dead. Those people that you hold up will be dead. They are not living right now. And God is the God of the dead. Or for us, when we reject that God is the God of the living, we reject the gospel. We reject the fact that he transforms us from glory to glory, that he wants you to have victory over your sin. There is power in Jesus' name and power through the Holy Spirit to transform you through his word. Let us not believe that God is the God of the dead because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive worshiping God right now in heaven. And that'll be us for all eternity. He is alive. Our God's not dead. He is surely alive. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Our faith will not be in vain with Christ. Therefore, again, we must submit to heavenly wisdom and grow. This is what this passage keeps saying over and over and over again. But what does this submission actually look like? Verse 33, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Utterly astonished by hearing the fact that God is the God of the living and everything else. They were not only astonished, but then they eventually became silent. Verse 34, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, 
they gathered together. The Sadducees stopped asking questions after Jesus' response. We do not see them ask another question. Maybe they asked some questions as Jesus' trial, but Matthew nor the other authors record another instance of a tricky question from the Sadducees. They were silent. So hearing that God is the God of the living, should we just be silent like the Sadducees? Not talk ever again? Yes and no. We are silent in the sense that we bring nothing to Jesus in response to our indignant hearts. What he has said is enough. Proverbs 21.30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail the Lord. There is no wisdom. I can bring no wisdom. You can bring no wisdom of of anybody on this planet can avail against the wisdom of the Lord. Jesus has the final word. He is the beginning and the end. We are silent. But in the next sense, we are not silent because we grow in what he has said. Because remember, He loved us while we were still sinners, that he's willing to die for us and to rise again and then commune with us, to have a conversation, to grow from glory to glory. And he desires to engage our minds and our hearts completely. To be specific, there's one question left from the Pharisees. And I think it'll address what what this conversation looks like as we conclude. This is what the Pharisees said to Jesus. Mind you, they were also very indignant as well, and they are about to be silenced by Jesus as well. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. O Lord, you have engaged me while I, I was a sinner, and you instruct sinners in your way. You allow me to ask questions even when I'm indignant, but help me to love you with my mind, to know who Jesus Christ is. Or, O Lord, help me to not only know you with my mind, but to love you with all of my heart. As a church founded in 1838, we can know a lot about Jesus. But if it's only in our mind and never affects our hearts, we are the most to be pitied because Jesus wants our affections. So church, this is an opportunity for us to grow in Christ. And for those who do not know him, This is an opportunity. I give you the same challenge that Michael Wilder's, that pastor gave to him. Simply read the text as a child and and try to destroy God's heavenly wisdom. Test him because he can handle your indignant heart and he wants to show you incredible love because he died for you. He died for your sins. So let us be reminded that God wants us to love him with all of our minds and with all of our hearts, not just to stay in indignance, but to be, to, to be astonished by him, to become silent, but then to have a, a magnificent conversation where we're being transformed from glory to glory. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and for this opportunity to, to look at your text. Father, we ask that you would revive our hearts, allow us to think about the resurrection, and be transformed from glory to glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark, and if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.